Hi, everyone. It's so great to give a live lecture, <laughs> finally. Uh, so my name is Victor Galas. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about planetary boundaries, the history behind planetary boundaries, and why they matter, and some new insights coming out from planetary boundaries science. Speaking of systems, of course, and the planet, it all begins here. So the history, the climate history of planet Earth. So this particular slide goes 60 million years back, where we start to have pretty good climate data, and it shows the temperature variability on the planet at the global scale. And as you can see, it's been a very bumpy ride for planet Earth. But then something unique happens sometime around 11,000 years ago, and this is what we call the Holocene, an unusual stable phase in the history of planet Earth where the climate stabilizes. And this is where we have flourished as a species. We've built democracies, we've built companies, we've built conferences, culture, technologies, etc. This is what we used to as a species. But then, of course, what we're doing now is just to move very quickly out of that safe space. So this is what my colleagues call a safe operating space for humanity. Now, the challenge that my colleagues noted is how do you know that you're moving outside of this safe space? Is it possible to quantify? What are some of the key levers in the Earth system that can tell us about whether we are indeed operating within the safe space? And that's when the Planetary Boundaries was born as a concept in 2009. So this just shows you a summary of that. So if a boundary is within green, that means it's estimated to be within a safe zone. If you move into the red zone, it's estimated that you're in a danger zone. And there are estimated nine boundaries, right? So you have climate change, of course. You have novel entities, meaning uh, chemicals produced by humans, ozone depletion, atmospheric aerosol loading, ocean acidification, biogeochemical flows, so that's phosphorus and nitrogen, uh, freshwater land system change, and biosphere integrity connected to biodiversity. So in 2009, we were at 387 ppm, parts per million, and the assessment by then was that we have breached climate, biosphere, and biogeochemistry. Three out of nine planetary boundaries. Now, of course, science evolves. So 2015, my colleagues did another update, and then we had breached the fourth planetary boundary linked to land system change. So that was the new update. 2022, again, my colleagues, um, novel entities. So in terms of chemicals uh, that operate within the Earth system was the first assessment just this year. And science moves fast, apparently, because in 2022, again, there was this new update that showed that we might possibly have breached the water boundary, or the green water boundary. This gets messy and complex, and these things interact in, a, in, in, in ways that we don't fully understand. So I remember uh, some of you, how many of you know, have heard of Johan Rockström? Clap your hands, yeah, most people. All right, yeah. Go, Johan. So I remember, uh, so Johan is my former boss at the Stockholm Resilience Center, and I remember talking to him about uh, these boundaries, and I said, Johan, I really don't get the water boundary. Like, is it a global boundary? Is it a tipping point? Like, what would that tipping point look like? I really don't understand it. And, and I remember, and, and he said, so imagine, imagine that you have planet Earth, right? So now I'm just going to show it 
Think of it as an apple, right? So you have planet Earth. So this is planet Earth. And you have human activity on planet Earth. Uh, so I'm going to take... And you very, very slowly start to peel off some of the key features of planet Earth. So a little bit of water, right? So you remove a little bit of water every year. You remove a little bit of forest, right? And when you do that, when you, remove, when you remove forests, you suddenly start to impact on the climate system because forests emit carbon. And you remove a little bit of biodiversity, so these makes forests more prone uh, to, to not recover after a fire. So you do that slowly but surely, and in the end, I'm not going to peel the whole apple, don't worry. In the end, what happens is that you destabilize the Earth system. So it's not able to operate in the same way as it has before. It's difficult to define precise scientific values for each of these boundaries. It's extremely challenging. And some of them are not even at the global scale. But that's not the point. The point is that we operate within a complex Earth system where these things are connected. And they undermine the ability of us as a species to flourish. So that's the whole point of planetary boundaries. One tangible example that's not an apple is the Amazon and the Amazon rainforest. These are, this is a video from 2019. You probably remember the huge forest fires in the Amazon. And the thing with the Amazon is that it has been suggested that the Amazon might have a tipping point, where you have a combination of climate change together with deforestation, where that rich forest suddenly transitions into a savanna. So you lose carbon, you lose biodiversity, and the livelihoods of millions of people that live in the Amazon changes drastically. It's not a quick process. It's not something that happens from one year to another. But it happens incrementally over decades, and it is irreversible. I think that, that is a key point. And how is that connected? We know already now that actually we might be approaching that tipping point for the Amazon. There's a lot of technicalities around it. I don't have time to go through it. But we, we, we know we might be reaching that tipping point. And when that, when that happens, if that happens, we lose a lot of carbon, right? So there's several of these so-called sleeping giants. So these are the forest biomes of the world. So you have the Amazon, you have the boreal forests, so those are the ones in, in, in the northern hemisphere, Russia, Canada, and then you have the permafrost. So that, that's a methane that's locked into the soil. So in, together, if we lose, or if these sleeping giants wake up due to deforestation and global warming and climate change, you would emit about 10 years of global carbon emissions from those systems. So that's how biodiversity, water, climate, and land use are connected, and they interact in ways that can push us into a very dangerous future. What is interesting to know, so, so the concept has evolved over time. Uh, we know more than we did in 2009. We know that companies are using the planetary boundaries framework. I mean, this is just from one assessment that I've seen, and you will hear more from the next speakers. What I see missing now, and this is also a message from my colleagues, that there's something important missing here, and it's inequality, dimensions of inequality. So this is from a, uh, an assessment that we made a, a couple of years ago, and here, the planetary overshoot is not only carbon. It's also uses some material. Uh, so we can tell that you, the U.S. population currently is using 27%, or responsible for 27% of overconsumption of our planetary resources. And the US is around, I guess, 4, 4 to 5% of the world population. 
Next, the EU and the UK. Uh, we have the rest of Europe, high-income countries. China, 15%. We talk a lot about China. But actually, this is within uh, their size in terms of population. And then, of course, the rest of the global south. So inequality is becoming a major, major issue. There's no way we can talk about breaching planetary boundaries without talking about who's actually pushing these boundaries. Another thing that I think is increasingly important is that it's not only the drivers that push us towards planetary boundaries that are unequal, it's also the impacts. So we very often talk about one and a half degree as some sort of safe uh, threshold or limit for global warming. The problem is now, uh, sorry if, if this is a little bit technical, so on, on the y-axis you have the percentage of population <coughs> and the bars are different climate scenarios. So here, current day, we're about 1.1, maybe even 1.2 global warming. But 20% of the world's population already live in a world that's above one and a half degrees of warming. That's a lot. So they're experiencing already what one and a half degree world would look like. When we reach 1.7 degrees global warming, which is likely to be within the next decades, 20% of the world will live in circumstances that are over two degrees warming. And in a scenario where we reach 2.7 degrees, and this is where we currently are um, in, in our policies that are, have been agreed on uh, internationally, 25% of the world's population will live in a world that's warmer than three degrees warming. So the impacts will be highly unequal. The drivers are unequal and the impacts are unequal. And normally you would think about this as something that separates the global north from the global south. So you would think about poor farmers in Africa or a mega city in, in the Philippines. But, and I think this is an important point, especially being here in Sweden and maybe uh, in Malmö, the fact that inequality is a national phenomenon. If you haven't seen this article from Dagens Nyheter, I really recommend you to do it. I think it's a summary from a research project that's um, from, Lund, from Lund University that looks at inequality to climate change in, in rich countries, such as, such as Sweden. So this particular image is from Husby, an interview from Husby. I was partly raised in Husby, so I was very glad to see this. And of course, the interviews with people is that housing is very unequal, even in a rich country such as Sweden. Not all buildings are able to cope with a warmer world, and it will have impact. Uh, unequal access to green areas. Maybe some of you are lucky to have a summer house, so if it gets too hot in the summer, you go to your summer house. Not everyone has a summer house. Not everyone has access to a green space where it's cooler. Unequal access to healthcare and differences in working conditions. We saw that extremely clearly during COVID-19, right? Uh, unequal access to healthcare and working conditions that put you in a much more vulnerable position in a changing climate. So, if there's anything that I think is important, and of course difficult, is the fact that the planetary boundaries concept has evolved over time in its biogeophysical details, but it has become unavoidable to talk about the impacts of inequality and social inequality, the impacts and how to mitigate that in a good way. 
when we talk about systems, so, so these things are connected. So whenever you have a shock or a crisis or you pull in one of these boundaries, climate or biodiversity or water, it has impacts on others. But that's also, I believe, an opportunity that people tend to miss out. So the fact that these systems are connected, it also means that they're synergies. If you're able to operate your company or your ministry or, or government agency, whatever you do, that has a positive, positive impact on one boundary, there will be cascading positive effects, most likely. Look for them, act on them, and think about the social dimensions. The other point that I think is important, and I can spend a lot of time on that, is that it's never too late to do something. I know that there's a carbon budget that's decreasing very quickly by time. It is urgent that we act, but I think it is important to communicate to everyone, especially young people, that it's never too late to act. Every tenth of a degree that we manage to avoid warming will save lives and will, be, uh, it will put us in a better position to create prosperous lives for people. And the last point, and here I'm quoting uh, Professor Karen O'Brien, who wrote a book about this, quantum social change is possible. It might look like things are not moving. A lot of people raising their voices and pushing for change in different parts of the systems, whether it's business or civil society, and things are not changing fast enough. But things suddenly can change. We know that from history. We've seen that before, and we might be at that point now. But it doesn't happen by itself, people. We need to do it. Uh, and as a last point, just to wrap up, because I think my time is up, I am a scientist. I care about numbers. But it's not about the metrics. <laughs> it's not about defining precise limits. Uh, to me, it is about creating a prosperous and secure future for all. Thank you.